Hello, and welcome to None of the Above. My name is Steve Nemirovsky, and I'm your host. On None of the Above, we, try, we, we examine why the political system is dysfunctional, why it's polarized, and we try and talk about solutions on every show. Um, no sense talking about the problem if you're also not going to talk about the solutions. Today, I'm going to do something a, a bit unusual. Um, I don't think I've done anything like this quite before. And I'm going I'm to say that what I'm doing is getting ahead of the fake news curve. Now, I don't call things fake news. I actually call them skewed news because I think each side skews the news for what they want it to be. And I think we're in the middle of that right now. Uh, they're trying to prepare their story for the election. And one of the things that is becoming the story of the election is whether or not it's going to be a wave election. You're going to hear a lot about that. You should have heard a lot about it already because I have. And you're going to hear more about it. And the question is, uh, for those people who are on the left, the liberals, the Democrats, who obviously can't stand Trump, do they want to prove that they have just trounced Trump, driven him into the ground, uh, pummeled him in the midterm, and uh, you know, just totally embarrassed him? And they're going to try and do that by saying that there was a wave, that there was an anti-Trump wave, and their wave you know, totally inundated uh, that side of the equation. Conversely, uh, the Republicans, uh, the conservatives, the Trump people, whoever you want to call them, they're going to be trying to defend their position and say that, no, there was no wave. Uh, that, in fact, their message is strong, their message is resonating, and they defeated the wave, so to speak. There, there was no wave because they know what they're doing and, and they're good at what they do. And I, I thought it would be interesting to uh, look at this as a topic. And coincidentally, our good friends at Ballotpedia.org uh, uh, one of the, our favorite sites uh, on the web, and we always refer you to them for political information. They had the same question. They, what is a wave? Is there going to be a wave? And when we look at the election, how will we know if there was a wave? And they've produced an excellent study about waves. It, as it turned out, a lot of people had historically thought about if there was a wave. There was varied definitions of waves. But Ballotpedia has now done the definitive study on waves, and they have come up with a numerical analysis that will tell us if there was a wave or not. So you can listen to the left, you can listen to the right, you can listen to skewed news and fake news, but if you really want to know if there's a wave or not this time around, we're going right to Ballotpedia and we're going to know if there's a wave. And to figure that out, we're going to talk to one of the authors of the study, Rob Oldham. So Rob, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. So, Great so, so I know why I was thinking about waves and I know I'm into skewed news and fake news and all other kind of news. Uh, why, why, why did you care if there was a wave or not? Yeah, so I think a, a lot of what you just said applies to what Ballotpedia was thinking in, uh, around January when we came up with this idea, was that they, there's, it's a likely that there are going to be some major electoral changes in 2018, and every side is probably going to say this was a wave or this was not a wave, depending on you know what benefits their narrative. So we wanted to have a definition that was based in history and on how elections have typically played out over the last 100 years. So we've look, we looked at elections going back to 1918 and uh, just kind of see what elections had looked like. You know, where were the ones where uh, the out-of-power party had gained a lot of seats? Where were the ones where they maybe had not gained so much? And we wanted to kind of just set a threshold so we could say, where does 2018 stack up? Is it closer to some of the bigger waves like you saw in 1932 where the FDR was elected? Or was it more of a, you know, a ripple, so to speak, where, you know, you might see that in some of the early 2000s elections? So, so you um, worked on this study, and uh, you, you did this in conjunction with uh, um, 
a gentleman by the name of Jacob Smith, correct? Yeah, yeah, Jacob Smith, that's right. He is a political scientist who just graduated from UNC, and he is about to start a fellowship at uh, Duke University. Okay, and this has been formally published? Uh, yes, yes, we've published it. It is on our site. Um, you can Google search Ballotpedia and wave elections, and I guarantee you that will be the first thing that comes up. Awesome. Um, so you and Jeff uh, worked in this study together, and um, obviously we, we know what got you excited about this. What, what, got, what got him, uh, Jacob rather, what got Jacob excited? What, what, where, where was he coming from? Yeah, so Jacob, uh, he's been interested in wave elections for a while. Um, you can check out his Twitter account. You'll you know, see plenty of uh, election news that he's, uh, that he's uh, sending out to the, the public. But uh, actually, he's, he's published a piece. I think this came from his uh, thesis while he was an undergraduate. And he later turned it into a piece for uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball, where he came up with his own definition for a wave election. And what he looked at was uh, elections where there is a significant change in the status quo and also a lot of seats uh, change partisan hands. So, uh, you know, we were trying to get more at the, uh, the second half of that, like what exactly is a significant change. But uh, Jacob, I think his, his definition is very valuable because it does take into account, you know, whether the House flipped, whether the Senate flipped, did a lot of governors suddenly change parties. Um, you know, it, it definitely brought some nuance to the topic that you don't always see through uh, other election analysis and uh, media reports. So for, for historical context, did you guys go back? To, I know you've looked at other people's studies and definitions of WAVE or how they've attempted to define it, but what, do you have any idea when this all started? Was there some one newspaper person that first used the term WAVE in 1977 or something? Or you never, got, you never figured that out? Now, that, that's a good question. Um, most of the, uh, the analysis that we looked in, I think the earliest we saw was either during the 2010 midterms or the 2014 midterms. I think 2014 is where you really saw a lot of uh, pundits start trying to offer a definition. Uh, Stu Rothenberg, for example, he, he, he looked at it, I think, in a pretty interesting way. Um, and uh, he was looking at elections where uh, unexpected things happen. So, you know, sometimes in waves, someone that uh, you might never have expected would have won an election or would have flipped a seat ends up winning even though they were, uh, you know, the district's history and their fundraising suggested that they weren't going to be very competitive. So, uh, you know, I think w I, our, our defini definition is objective, which makes it nice. You know, you can't really either hit the threshold or you don't. But um, all these other definitions, they think about them in uh, very creative ways. And I think those are also uh, very valuable for the discussion that we're trying to have about waves and what they are and how likely they are to occur. All right, so I want to get to the results of this study, but first I want to talk a little bit more about how you put this together, what your methodology was, what your thinking was. So how did you originally define it, and how did you set forth the numerical parameters that you wanted to study? Yeah, so our, uh, our definition, it's, um, it's based on a threshold. So it is if you fall into the 20% of elections in the last 100 years where that, uh, the party that is out of power, so that would be the Democrats this year, but, uh, you know, it could be the Democrats or Republicans. So if you're in the 20% of elections where that party lost the most seats, that qualifies you as a wave. And kind of our thinking behind that was that uh, it should be a significant event. And, you know, if you can't say that every election's a wave. <laughs> there has to be, it has to be something that's rare. And we felt that the 20% definition that we were putting forth allowed for, uh, you know, this to be a relatively infrequent event. But uh, also, we wanted to have enough data where, you know, we, we could say that waves had happened and they're things that are 
worth studying and not just once in a blue moon uh, events. I think something else we did that's innovative that you're not um, you're not going to see in a lot of other studies and was that we divided uh, elections into four different types. So we didn't just say, oh, you know, 2010 was a wave and call it that. And we didn't just look at the house. We uh, said that you can have a wave in different areas. So, for example, one year you might have a wave in the house elections where there's a big tide and, you know, say the out of power party gains a ton of seats. But that might not be happening at the Senate level, at the gubernatorial level or the state legislative level. So uh, I think dividing the data into those different sections really provides a, you know, a little bit uh, more uh, breadth to the analysis that uh, can make it more useful to look at than just you know, using WAVE like a blanket term. So again, just to be clear for our viewers, you looked at the U.S. Congress, which gets reelected in its entirety every two years. That was yes. one set. Then you looked at the U.S. Senate, which gets elected for seats every six years, but roughly one-third of it is up in every two-year cycle. You looked, you looked at gubernatorial elections. Now, are most gubernatorial elections on four-year cycles these days? Yeah, so all uh, gubernatorial elections except for New Hampshire and Vermont are on uh, four-year cycles now. That has not been the case historically, so that, that presented a little bit of a wrinkle for studying uh, those elections just because um, in the 60s and 70s you saw a lot of them move to four-year cycles. And so... Uh, it can make it a little bit dicey to figure out, you know, you can't, it's hard to compare a year where there's 10 gubernatorial elections as opposed to one where there's 30 gubernatorial elections. And you ended up seeing a lot more uh, variation between the years as states move to four-year cycles. And I guess that's another part of it. The Senate, the way the election system is designed, is going to be roughly one-third, one-third, one-third every two years. For the governorships, they're not on any... Um, system like that. So you could have a huge number of governorships in one cycle and a very small number in another cycle, correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. So in uh, 2016, for example, I think there were 12 or 14 uh, governorships up, and now uh, there are going to be 36 that are up in 2018. So, you know, by our definition, that makes it incredibly more likely that 2018 is going to be a wave than uh, 2016, but uh, that's just one of the limitations of the data that we kind of had to run with in a you know, hope that our transparency about all the information that we released would help viewers understand and disagree if they, uh, they thought we should have done it a different way. And then finally, you looked at state legislatures. Now, state legislatures, I assume you look at state senates and state houses of representatives. For those yes, numbers. that's right. We did. We considered those the, the same, too, when we, would, uh, when we were looking at uh, waves there. And most state house of representative seats, like Congress, are up every two years. Most state senate seats are kind of uh, totally different cycles. Most, I think, are four-year cycles. Some states, like Illinois, where I've done most of my work, every 10 years you have two fours and a two. So the legislative cycle is going to have its own rhythm to how many are elected in any particular cycle. Yeah, that, that's correct. And most state senates are on the two-year cycle, but um, like, like for Illinois, for example, y'all will have elections every two years, but uh, the fact that uh, yeah, you stagger which seats are up that can definitely make it a little, um, you know, you're not looking at the exact same set of data every year. So again, like the gubernatorial elections, that's a limitation of our data. But I think it's also something that we were very transparent about when presenting it. So uh, a reader can, you know, take that for what they will and form their own conclusion if they want to. And again, I don't consider it a limitation because in any one year you've got, what, seven or 8,000 state seats. So if you try to start distinguishing between Senate and House, et cetera, I, I don't think it's going to get you anywhere. 
Yeah, that, it's, it's definitely less problematic than the uh, the gubernatorial elections are because you can, like you said, there's a ton of data and you're not likely to lose a lot of observations just by omitting a few states in a, any given year. Right. But you did decide to look at a 100-year cycle. Anything particularly unique to the 100-year cycle in terms of the cutoff or not? Yeah, I think, um, and I think a lot of political scientists will tell you the same thing. If you look at elections before World War II, you just you saw much larger swings than you're going to see in the uh, the post World War II era, and I think uh, a lot of that has to do with the partisan realignment of the country. Is you know particularly after the 1960s, where um, the South started becoming more Republican, they weren't the solid Democratic region anymore, and so there's actually we have a, a component of our study where we consider overall waves. So that looks at the entire 100 year period and defines a wave based off of that. And then we have another uh, component where we only look at waves after 1945, so 1946 to 2016. And that, because you're omitting some of these elections where there are massive swings, um, that really makes it uh, the, wave, the wave threshold gets smaller. Um, for example, the wave threshold for the 100 years for the U.S. House is 48 seats. That's how many seats the, uh, the out-of-party, out-of-power party must lose in order to qualify as a wave. But for the uh, post-World War II era, that goes all the way down to 30 seats once you omit some, like 1932, 1930, and some of these elections that are, you know, are just hard to account for. So again, it just, it just suggests that whatever historical period you pick, you, you're going to have some different variations. Some people might start, like you said, post-World War II. You went back 100 years. Some people might maybe look at the whole 200-and-some-year history of our country. But you, you focused on 100 years, and I'm sure that's statistically significant enough uh, for a study of this sort. So you, I get, you already give the, uh, a hint uh, to one of the numbers. Let's do a bit of a drum roll here and tell us now. In, in, 19, in, in, in 2018, in order to have a wave election for these four different segments, uh, what, what are the numbers? You're right. So if you look at the House uh, for the 100-year cycle, the Democrats are going to have to pick up 48 seats. If you look at the Senate, Democrats will have to pick up seven seats. You look at gubernatorial elections again, seven seats, and if you look at state legis state legislative elections, they'll have to pick up 494 seats. So those are the thresholds based off, you know, what the most significant elections over the last 100 years were. That is where what 2018 will have to be if it's going to rank among those top 20 percent. Not to say that it still couldn't be a very significant election, but. Uh, at least at Ballotpedia, we wouldn't consider it a wave unless it was in the, that top 20 percent. Okay, so I, I think most people, when, when, when they talk about a wave, they're looking at the House of Representatives, U.S. House of Representatives, correct? Yeah, and I, I would agree. And under your definition for 2018, for our viewers, when they're in this fake news, skewed news world, and they want to see how people are spinning the election results, we're going to focus on 48, correct? Um, so, yeah, I think 48 would probably so be. If the, the Democrats number. don't pick up 48, they shouldn't be able to declare that there was a wave, and uh, if they pick up 48, the Republicans shouldn't be able to say there wasn't a wave. That's our number. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not trying to put any limitations on the language that people use to do it. We're just, our definition really shows more than anything that historically, you, you can't say that you were in the top 20%. This isn't the most significant historical election, but, uh, you know, there are, like we said, their elections have changed a lot, so, um, you know, the significant of a, a significance of an election is always tied to the time that it happens. Right, so, Rob, we're going to see now through the magic of technology, we can reach out to Jeremy here in the studio and get, get this uh, uh, screenshot put up. So this is the House wave elections 
And this is, uh, what, the top dozen or so that uh, were the most, or these are all the House wave elections over the last 100 years? So these are all the waves, and I'll kind of just explain how you get to that. So um, 100 years of elections, if you have an election every two years, that's 50 elections. So the top 20% of that should be the top 10 House elections uh, over the last uh, 100 years. And so we ended up having 11 here, actually, because there was a tie for 10th place between the 1996 elections, where there was a wave against uh, the Democratic Party when Lyndon Johnson was president, and the 1974 elections, where uh, there was a wave against the Republican Party when uh, Gerald Ford was, was president. So, um, yeah, 48 seats in both of those. That's why we have 11. Typically, though, if you divide uh, 50 elections into 20 percent uh, categories, you're going to have 10 elections as waves. Okay, we got that. So going through this chart, one of the things that stands out, and I think why the wave is so prevalent in conversation right now, is most waves are occurring during a first pres a president's first midterm, correct? Uh, yes, that's correct. So we have, uh, of these, one, two, three, four, five, six. So, so more than half occurred uh, during the first midterm. Did you guys try to figure out why the first midterm is the most volatile period? So we, don't, we, didn't, we weren't trying to put any causal analysis behind it, but uh, political scientists have weighed in on that a lot. And I think um, the biggest, or the most uh, common at least, uh, explanations you're going to hear is that uh, the year after a presidential election, the president's supporters tend to be uh, demobilized, and the opposition tends to be energized, uh, often by low approval ratings, because presidents just typically tend to decline a little bit as they come to their first election. Voters uh, voters want change, and they uh, they become less popular as they're in office. And then uh, a lot of times, too, you're, you'll see an economic dip that the president typically gets blamed for, and the uh, that will also that tends to drive turnout as well in uh, some of these elections, according to the you know, political science literature on uh, on uh, midterm elections. And as you said, <laughs> there could be an enthusiasm gap, so to speak, but there also is a fairly significant drop off in just turnout for midterms as well. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So if you're um, and a lot of the times, if there is an enthusiasm gap and you have lower turnout, anyhow, then that means that the people that are most motivated to vote against the president are going to be a, a larger segment of the um, of the population that is turning out. So that can definitely play into uh, into these elections. Uh, you know, seeing 97 seats lost in 1932, that uh, that played a lot into uh, President Hoover being unpopular. The the Great Depression um, had just you know gotten started a few years before that. So those kind of factors are what you historically see as being the biggest uh, factors that are driving turnout. Right, and I think one of the reasons that, again, this wave concept has been a little more prevalent, a little more current, is when you look on this chart, uh, the fourth highest wave was in 2010 when President Obama had his first midterm, and uh, there was a swing of 63 seats. And not only that, that is the highest ranking shift in terms of the House flipping. So in other words, Obama, uh, of, the, of, the, of the four times when the House flipped, Obama's was the most significant flip at the, at the same time on the chart. Right, and I think the, one of the reasons for that is because uh, two, uh, two of the waves were in uh, the 30s where there were just giant majorities that the, the Democrats had in uh, 38. So even though the Republicans had a wave against them in 38, there was just no unseating that majority. Mm -hmm. And then in uh, 32, the Democrats had a wave the year before as well in 1930. So they had already taken control of the House and 
they were really just padding their majority, although they did so with 100 seats, which created a you know, fairly large majority. You know, so, now, uh, now, I think I'm a bit with Jacob on this one. Uh, I think if I was going to have a definition of wave, and again, you have a good one. I'm not fighting you on this one. I would require the House to have flipped as well, uh, to have picked up a tremendous number of seats, but not to have gained the majority in the House to me. That would not be a wave for me. Um, and again, I, I'm not trying to dispute where you guys came out, but I think it's interesting that at least in four of the uh, waves, there also was a flip that did occur. Okay, see, yeah, I, 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 go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, one, Jacob's definition also was um, he focused on the political status quo. And I think that even if you don't have a chamber flip, you can still see significant shifts in the, in the status quo. For, for example, in 1932, once uh, Roosevelt comes in with an extra 100 Democrats on his back, that's going to make it much easier for him to pass policies that perhaps uh, he wouldn't have been able to if the majority would have been uh, as slim as it was uh, the year before that. So I think both definitions can kind of work together in that respect. And by the way, I know you don't have that data, but I agree with you on that. And I think maybe if you start to look at another round of this study or an enhanced round, so to speak, uh, to me it's not only important to see if you flipped, but the question is, what was the level of control that you achieved? To be in control of the House of Representatives, 218 to 217, you're in control, but you're really not in control. That's such a tight margin, anything can happen. But if, you, if you're in control, you know, 250 to 185, now you can get done whatever you want to get done. So I think there's an element of not only flipping to me, but the strength of the control involved at the same time. And as you suggested, you already could have been in control and had a wave and then gotten to that level of power. And, and to me, that's where the significance lies. So we have these numbers. And uh, again, through magic, Jeremy, thanks for putting those up on the screen. We'll go, go back to Rob now. Uh, one of the things that you talk about in the study is not just waves, but tsunamis. And uh, I found the tsunami conversation interesting because the question is, well, did you have a wave in the U.S. Congress or did you have a wave in the governor level? But what if you had a wave at all four levels or all three levels? And I think you guys were starting to call that more, more like a tsunami. So how much time did you spend on tsunamis and what can you tell us about those? Yeah, so they, we, I think there, there's some merit um, to calling a year a wave rather than saying, you know, there was a house wave in 2006, a, a governor's wave in 2008, you know, I'm just throwing random election dates out there, but that's kind of, we, we had looked at it in such a, such a segmented way so far where you really had to be specific about the year and the type of election, where we also wanted to be able to say, you know, what constitutes an election or a wave across all four groups. And so we didn't quite put the threshold that you had to have a wave in every group because then there would have only been two examples and that would have been very interesting data to look at. And so, uh, what we ended up doing was saying that um, you, in order to have a tsunami election, you would have to have a wave in the U.S. House and state legislative seats, which isn't uncommon. Both of those seats are on, or both of those election types are, you know, more or less on two-year cycles, so they tend to kind of ebb and flow with each other. But then we also said you had to have a wave in either the U.S. Senate or governor's elections, which again, because of uh, how those elections come up, um, you know whether your party has a lot of seats up in the Senate one year could affect your prospects of having a wave um, for the governors, whether um, you know it's a year where a lot of governors are up, especially after a lot of them switch towards four-year cycles. Um, those are going to be a little bit uh, 
you know, less likely to occur when the House and state legislative waves did. So uh, we did that analysis, and we ended up finding that there are seven tsunami waves. And again, um, these are years that probably won't surprise you if you looked at the House data closely. 1930, 1932, those were huge waves against the Republican Party at the, at the onset of the Great Depression. So you see tsunamis in those years, too. Um, the most recent one, uh, like we were talking about earlier, was the 2010 elections. Um, you know, those the, the same set of elections pop up again and again throughout this report. And uh, 2010 is really one to key in on because, um, you know, it's, maybe it's not appreciated for how you know, large that change was at the end of, uh, you know, right before a redistricting cycle as well for the 2010 census. But, um, yeah, the, and that year there uh, – it was a wave against Obama and the Democrats and uh, the House uh, governor seats and state legislative seats. There were waves in all three of them, and uh, particularly in governors and state legislative seats. If you win those, you have the ability to control the redistricting process. So that was especially important for Republicans at the end of t- uh, at the end of that decade, right before the uh, the next census was taken. Well, Rob, uh, time always flies when I'm doing my interviews, and it has flown here today. But before we leave, can you please tell my viewers again how to find this uh, great study? Yes, absolutely. Um, so you should Google search Ballotpedia Wave Elections, and I promise it will be the first thing that comes up. If you don't want to do that, you can go to ballotpedia.org, and if you scroll on the page, we have several links to this report that you can, uh, that you can find off of our, our front page. And uh, we also have lots of other election analysis on there. We cover Congress, state legislatures, governor's races, um, the top 100 cities based off population. So, uh, you know, in addition to the Waves Report, I would encourage all of your viewers to use Ballotpedia for other uh, election and government-related news. Well, thanks, Rob. You've been a great guest. Yeah, thank you very much, Nemo. Have a good one. So I've been talking to Rob Oldham from Ballotpedia, and I I didn't want to put pressure on Rob at the beginning, but... uh, uh, he's our first Ballotpedia guest of 2018, and uh, what, what, I don't think Rob knows this, but if, if you do well on this show on your first time as a, from Ballotpedia, you become a Ballotpedia all-star. So I think we have to definitely make Rob a Ballotpedia all-star today. And once you become a Ballotpedia all-star, that means you have to come back on the show again. So we'll try and get Rob back, and I have a guess he's, I'm guessing he's going to do another iteration of this study. So we refer you to the study, but as I said at the beginning of the show, this is, this is about me taking a little tweak at the world of fake news and giving you some very uh, accurate information in a study by Ballotpedia, and everything they do is always accurate. So you can make your own determinations this year. Was this a wave year? Was it not a wave year? Or as we get our way into, as we work our way toward the election, to just take the pulse yourself, see where things are going. Uh, I'm going to start early this year and reminding you that you've got to vote this year. We talked about voter drop-off. Do not let there be a voter drop-off in your household. Make sure you're all registered and make sure that you're all going to vote this year. Remember, if you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. Thank you.